0: Hi, it's
1: Howard Murlow And this is Dan Ginolfi.
0: Thanks for tuning in to our second Motorlog podcast. We're on the American Shoreline Podcast Network and we're back with our monthly report on the latest from Congress, also news about the Corps and other federal agencies. Plus, we're going to provide you with some of our award-winning analysis of the important issues that are affecting the water resources communities. Our aim is to put information into your hands about breaking developments that affect you and your job
1: and your family and your community. A big uh, thanks to listeners who are already subscribed to our e-newsletter and blog. Uh, To sign up for your free subscription, go to waterlog.net. We'll be debuting something new at the Florida Shore and Beach Association Conference February 6th through 8th in St. Augustine, Florida. And we'll be sharing that with you later in this podcast.
0: to start uh, today's episode with what's currently going on with this shutdown and its impact on the water resource community. You know, we're, we're also going to dive into the Trump administration's plan to divert core funds to build a border wall and then highlight some things for you to look out for in the 116th Congress.
1: Uh, so for those of you who don't know, we are based right here in Washington, D.C. Uh, so we are right at the center of right at the epicenter of all this uh, government chaos that's going on. So, Howard, uh, could you start off? What's the latest on the government shutdown?
0: Well, we got 33 days and, and uh, going, and I don't see any end to it in sight. Commerce is working. The Corps is working. Both uh, the Corps, one of those agencies that was funded. So they're able to continue working. And Commerce, strangely enough, managed to fund itself last year. So it's working. But what it's doing about it is hard to say. Uh, disaster funds were appropriated last year, and there was some talk uh, about the fact that they might be used for funding the government, funding funding the war wall rather. And uh, but see, the disaster affected Florida, Texas, and a number of other places, but Florida and Texas I mentioned because Senator Cornyn of Texas is the uh, that second number two Republican in the Senate, and he spoke up right away and. Senator Rubio is uh, occasionally one of President Trump's favorite uh, senators, or hated senators, we don't know. But nevertheless, uh, he spoke up and said, don't touch our disaster funds, we need them. So, core officials and the president have both said that none of the previously appropriated disaster funds are going to be used for the border wall. But the threat is still pending for for core projects that were funded with non-disaster funded appropriations
1: then. Right, so those, not all projects are safe. How, how could the president uh, still divert funds for core projects? How, how is he able to do that? Well,
0: at least easy on paper. There's a 1976 law that allows him to declare a national emergency. That law specifically says he can commandeer core of engineers, civil works, funds, personnel, and equipment to construct or assist in the construction of civil works, military construction, civil defense projects that are essential to the national defense. And how much
1: money is available? How, how much could he divert to the wall?
0: Well, first the White House has ordered the Corps to search for money within its own budget. So let's take a look uh, at what you know, the Corps might be looking at. One, they got uh, $12 billion in the supplemental uh, from the House recently for more post-disaster funds, but it's very broadly spent as to what is disaster, very broadly defined. So, uh, that's one pot. Another pot uh, is uh, a a billion and three from the core civil works program that is in that 12 billion dollars. So just to make that clear, the amount of money that the core house has just appropriated includes a billion three for the core and that's the equivalent of almost 20% on top of the Corps' regular funding, uh, which is 6.7 billion. So Congress already supplemented that last year by 17 billion in disaster funding. So I'm throwing out a lot of numbers, but basically there's gotta be a lot of opportunity in all of that money to find something to build some part of that wall.
1: Right, that's, that's 29 billion in the past two years.
0: Your math is better than mine, so I thank you for that, but I'll tell you, you know, Right now, right now, the issue is the president needs to find some way to declare victory, and make it seem like he beat Speaker Pelosi, and the House Democrats into submission. That's his approach to life. All of his, uh, you know, know how to make a deal and all that stuff, is basically beating people in submission to a point where he says, "I've declared victory." Well. Speaker Pelosi. She's one of more than 100 women of uh, both parties serving this Congress. It's a record high number of women and she's tough. So President Trump's having difficulty bullying her. We'll see if there's any solution, however, temporary to to get paychecks into the hands uh, of these 800,000 federal workers who've been either furloughed or told to come to work without pay. I'm hoping to see that that we see a uh, crack in the standoff before the end of the month. You know, Dan, what we're having here is a, a, I guess you could call it a Mexican standoff, whatever that means, uh, because I'm, you know, a child of B-Westerns that I grew up on, and they used to call Mexican standoffs, where they'd have, you know, folks like at the OK Corral uh, and ready to shoot out. But the fact of the matter is here, try thinking about this for a moment. We're gonna cut your salary off for a month just think about how you're going to be able to pay for the bills. And the fact of the matter is, workers who are told that they have to come to work and not be paid, men and women, they've got childcare, they've got transportation, they've got food, they've got all the other things to think about. And so increasingly, saw an article in the paper, said uh, IRS workers told to come in and process refund checks. They're starting to call in sick because they can't afford to come in. TSA workers, you've been all reading about that. It was worried about TSA workers. Yeah, they ought to be worried about it, just like any other employee. So, what I'm saying about it is you can skateboard down Pennsylvania Avenue and you can zigzag, whatever that move is called, and and not even have to do you know climb climb any curbs to get out of the way of cars. Right. We're yeah.
1: having uh, probably the quickest quickest trips from our office up to Capitol Hill that we've ever had. And yeah. Certainly that you've ever ever had. Yeah, um,
0: yeah. I guarantee you that, except for the one we had yesterday where we had. <laughs> Somebody who just decided to go as slow as he possibly could to make as much money. I, I've talked to cab drivers. They're in, they're hurting. There's a load of people who are in the secondary market. That is, they are not federal workers, but they depend upon federal workers. Be they restaurant workers here in D.C. or contractors out in Boise, Idaho, and make any difference. And the federal workers may be able to get, will be able to get their paychecks, but the contractors not necessarily.
1: Right. So. And restaurant workers, taxi cab drivers, taxi cab drivers, the metro, the metro system, our subway, our subway system around here in DC is losing an estimated four hundred thousand dollars every weekday. Yeah. So, so I, it, it, you know,
0: my solution, uh, I have a solution, President. Maybe we just uh, shout out a little bit to him. He's just a couple blocks away. And, and I said, look, just declare victory. It's it's something that uh, a famous Senator whose name escapes me right now from Vermont suggested during the Vietnam War, we can get out of this by declaring victory, and it would have been, you know, saved a a heck of a lot of lives to do that. It needs to declare victory, and the the Democrats in the House have to say, okay, we'll we'll give you some money for the war. Now, Now look at this. This is going to be built by the Corps of Engineers. You know, we have a client. It's been waiting 17 years to get their project done through the Corps of Engineers. It's not that all the Corps of Engineers fault and we'll get into that in some future broadcast. You know, is the problems with OMB and the, and the like. But when you look at it, it's going to take time for them to decide concrete, uh, steel, titanium, aluminum, whatever they're going to do, then they're going to have to go through a NEPA analysis. Can you believe the court challenges are going to be going on that? Go ahead, let them have some money. <laughs> give it to the Corps of Engineers, it's never going to happen. Guaranteed. And declare victory and
1: it's over. Well, this is, this is actually a great segue. I'd like to just add in one more fact that, you know, after the first paycheck, the average that federal employees were missing was about 5,000. And we're going on our second missed paycheck. So we're talking almost 10 grand that the average employee is, is out. So. Uh, Let's move on from that. I think that, uh, what you just mentioned OMB, that brings a perfect time to uh, discuss the lack of earmarks and how that affects the appropriations process. Uh, Can you talk a little bit about why earmarks uh, get a bad rap since they were banned in 2008? Well, yeah,
0: it it used to be that there was no transparency. So uh, a member of Congress would just simply talk to the chair of a committee and say, look, I need something for my district, and if you do that, I will vote for uh, this particular appropriations bill. And the chair would say, OK, uh, I'll, I'll do that. But I need something from you. And that kind of thing went on. Not necessarily all bad. But you know, the fact of the matter was no transparency at all. So then we got to the point where now Congress decided, well, there were some scandals about that. And you, know, you got to a point where they said, well, the best way to do it is we're going to prevent ourselves from earmarking anything. Now let's take that into the Corps of Engineers and why that's bad. Because look who earmarks the bill—it's the president. Oh, he's been doing that forever. It doesn't make any difference this president, last president—you can go back to George Washington, probably. The, the fact of the matter is that it's always been that the president earmarks the uh, the Corps budget, absolutely project by project, program by program. Congress can't add a project to that at all. So, okay you got all these things that happen in projects that are going on, and there's no transparency in what the president chooses. So the Office of Management and Budget is in control. Congress decides to add pots of money to the core budget, because they, it's all they can do. They can say, all oh, you proposed is $4 billion, we'll up it to 6000000000 billion, we'll give you these pots of money. Who allocates those pots of money? It's the president. and. It's our friends at OMB, who have no transparency whatsoever. So, you know, it, it, it's hurt the course program. It's strangled the course program because it's getting the core into being a maintenance agency. And the, the earmarks are for Congress to exert their constitutional power over the purse, over the spending power of the, of the U.S. Do, so, you,
1: do you think things would be any different if we had earmarks in the 116th Congress with the new members that we have in the... Yeah,
0: you know, I think we'd be looking at the fact that members would start saying, "Look, you know, we don't even have to go with, uh, with with projects, although you know there's going to be a lot of projects. But how about programs? There are programs on climate change that were authorized by Congress of several years ago that haven't been funded. There are authorized programs on regionality, which we're going to be talking more about in future podcasts. We just touch on a little bit today. Uh, they could be funded by Congress. They're not going to be funded by OMB. You're not going to see new initiatives because it's OMB's purpose. It has been its purpose for years to strangle the growth of the core, that is, the growth of water resources programs in this country. Growth meaning meeting 21st century needs. So I, I think it would be a lot different.
1: Yeah, particularly coming from a lobbyist point of view, it really doesn't make sense to put on this coordinated effort and coordinated work between communities, uh, the core districts, core divisions, the head uh, headquarters, and then finally all the way up to Assistant Secretary's office, and then just have the decision ultimately end up at the mercy of two people who haven't been versed on the importance of these projects or have any accountability at all, especially given that the past two years pulled $29 billion from the Treasury for disaster relief alone.
0: So, So let's... You know, reinforce that. So you have eight states in the Great Lakes who got together and decided two and a half years ago what they wanted to do in collaboration with the core FEMA, uh, EPA, NOAA, USGS. Tremendous. Tremendous effort that they decided that how they wanted to approach resiliency. And they started out with a resiliency initiative so all this was done incidentally using core overhead money and the overhead funds of the other agencies uh federal agencies i've never seen this before it's absolutely beautiful they worked on it developed a project management plan over three years they knew exactly what what specific things they wanted to see in year one two and three got to the end of this thing all they needed was money from the core to get this started. NOAA had put in money, EPA had put in data, everybody was putting in something. And all support through the core, districts, divisions, all of that up through uh, Assistant Secretary's office. Down comes the two folks you just mentioned. And as I say it, you know, I, I use the term, you know, they got waxed. We'll explain that some other time and what that meant. But basically, no. They got defeated, and, and, and the money that Congress tried to tell the the OMB folks that they wanted to go in that direction, instead of going to the Great Lakes or anything to do with coastal resiliency, which is what uh, the regional effort that uh, Congress uh, put into its you know its uh, directive language, uh, because they can't earmark, they couldn't go any further. Instead of going there. It went to uh, the Kansas City River or something like that. Kansas City River. Uh, so, you know, it, it, it does not make sense to have collaboration if all of your efforts are going to lead to no from these two folks that are on
1: Come on, let's make a change. So, how can we make earmarks fair?
0: You make it fair by making it transparent. So, and, and we got almost to that point when Congress, uh, uh, you know, disbanded and deprived itself of earmarks. If uh, Community A says, I would like to have uh, a, a study done of our uh, resilience in this region, and they get Communities B and C to sign on, for example, that uh, and they send it to their three House members and their, let's say, two senators, that gets posted on a website for everybody to see. Right away, it gets posted. If those members of Congress then submit it to the Appropriations Committee and want it to be funded, the Appropriations Committee puts it on their website, easy to find. If the Appropriations Committee approves that, then that is also part of their final bill report. This is who we approved, this is who we requested it, this was the substantiation for it, this is why we did it. Simple, it's transparency. Then the media can take over and they can say, oh, this was good, this is bad, but transparency is what is the answer. Is It's the media, not with fake news, but the folks here in D.C. and the media are very assertive, aggressive, in looking for things to report on that are bad. If they find something bad, they'll report it. That's the answer and the public will know about it right away.
1: Yeah, we, we actually, we, uh, if you guys like, we'd love to hear your opinion. We have a blog uh, on our website. It's titled, uh, It's Time to Bring Back your Marks." If you guys want to check that out, we have a poll right there at the top. We'd love to know your feedback. Uh, you'll find that on waterlog.net. Yeah, Paul, uh,
0: I've, I've got my mother voting on that, so uh, <laughs> you know, I hope you have your relatives and whole family voting, too. But, I mean, it's important. We'd like to hear from you on, on, this, on this subject and as well as uh, others.
1: Um, so let's take some time to highlight uh, changes happening on Capitol Hill. January 3rd marked the first day of the 116th Congress. Uh, Democrats were eager to form a special committee that would focus on climate change. Uh, that committee is called the House Select Committee on the Climate Crisis. It's led by Kathy Castor, a Democrat from Tampa Bay. And members have said that the, the, this committee lacks the teeth it needs because it doesn't have the subpoena power uh, that and the mandate power that previous Uh, Previous committees have. However, I can imagine that at least the grassroots support will grow, even if the formal powers of the committee remain limited. Howard, uh, what would you like to see this committee do? Here's what I'd like to see. Again, focusing on the Corps of
0: Engineers, water resources in this country are planned project by project by law. You have to study each one, and I understand each one needs to be planned separately, but each one is authorized separately, it is appropriated separately, it is managed separately. But the fact of the matter is that we have to deal with water resource systems. So, why don't we uh, get to the point where we are actually able to look at things systematically? The only way to do that is for Congress to come up with a change in the way it's organized and the way that water resource programs are authorized and appropriated. That's what I'd like to see, because I think we can deal with climate change. It's the same thing that the folks that I just talked about in the Great Lakes were trying to deal with regionally. And there are folks that we've been talking with in the Mid-Atlantic, in the New England states, in, the, uh, in, in California, which by itself is a set of regions uh, equivalent to that on the East Coast. The fact of the matter is they would like to deal with things regionally, but right now they really can't. They just have to start looking at their, my project, my project, everybody looks at my project. It's it's got to be something bigger, and I hope that they look into that.
1: Yeah, with members saying it lacks the teeth it needs, I hope that somewhere in the 116th Congress we have ourselves a great white shark, three layers of teeth. Uh, we also have some changes in the House TNI and Appropriations Committees. You want to talk a little bit about that?
0: Sure. And uh, Transportation Infrastructure is the committee that oversees the, the core. Uh, we're going to continue to have strong support for Water Resources projects. Representative Pete DeFazio is the uh, a veteran member of Congress from Oregon. Uh, he now assumes the chairmanship of the committee. Uh, Sam Graves from Missouri, Republican, is the ranking member. And Bruce Westerman is the Republican from Arkansas who's going to serve as the ranking member of the Water Resources Environment Committee, that is specifically the one that deals with uh, the core. Dem- the Democratic uh, chair hasn't yet been assigned to the subcommittee. Over on House Appropriations Committee, uh, Representative Nita Lowy from my uh, area, we called it Upstate New York. Uh, it was actually just suburban uh, New York, north of New York. Uh, she, uh, together with uh, Kate Granger, as uh, the ranking committee member. Uh, I should make clear, uh, Nina Lowy is the chair, and Kate Granger the ranking member of uh, House Appropriations. Now, Marcy Kaptur of Ohio will be the chair of the Energy and Water Development subcommittee. That's the subcommittee that handles the core budget. The ranking member is likely to be Mike Simpson of Idaho. Uh, you know, I just mentioned the Great Lakes, and Marcy Kaptur has been a huge proponent of the Great Lakes. We've got to remember that they are coastal. Those Great Lakes are huge, to use a certain president's favorite word, and uh, therefore she is uh, one I I know will be very interested in water resources. Dan, I also want to uh, let our listeners know about a major change in our firm's mission uh, that you've been honchoing. Over the past 40 years, our business is focused on helping local and state governments as well as private companies develop solutions for their coastal problems. As I've already mentioned, you know, these problems have, uh, have been largely project focused. Well, problems have increased as well because you have rising seas and declining federal funding. And our vision of how coastal systems work together has also. Uh, you know, morphed from a project-by-project approach to more of a systems approach. So, right now, our outlook is, from here on, going to focus on regional resource management, streamlining, collaboration with core processes and implementing policies that are going to cut costs and deliver projects faster and more effectively in terms of dealing with the problems of the 21st century.
1: Uh, Thanks for that intro. Yeah, We'll be talking uh, more about this program in detail at the Florida Shore and Beach Preservation Association's Conference on Beach Preservation Technology. That's February 6th through the 8th in St. Augustine, Florida. Uh, We'll be speaking at 5.05 on Thursday, February 7th. I hope to see you there. Um, Our topic is improving beach nourishment effectiveness while reducing costs through regional collaboration. And most importantly, we'll be presenting not only as Warwick Group Consultants, but as our new firm, Coastal Strategies, LLC. This is a firm entirely dedicated to bolstering coastal resilience through coordination of local governments and regional coalitions with state agencies, federal agencies, and the private sector. One of our primary focuses will be improving shoreline stabilization while reducing costs associated with beach nourishment and dredging. These issues, as big as they are now, will only be so much greater in the future. Uh, There's going to be enormous cost savings, both to life and property. And if we can work together now and prepare, That's what Coastal Strategy is all about. So,
0: I wanted to add something on that to our listeners. Think about the cost of doing nothing. The CORA often has what it calls a project without condition. Suppose you did nothing more than you're doing today in your community, if you're in a coastal community, to protect your residences, your businesses, your uh, roads, all the things that are essential look at that 20 years from now, look at that 30 years from now, see what what the costs are going to be in terms of disaster funds that are going to have to be spent to repair damages. That's something that uh, is another way of looking at, at things in terms of costs. So yes. that's my two cents on that one. It's
1: the future. Uh, well, thank you very much for listening today. We hope you found uh, today's content enjoyable and informative. We'll be back with Uh, We'll be back next month with our next episode of Waterlog. In the meantime, you can keep up with the developments by going to waterlog.net and subscribing to our free Waterlog e-newsletter and blog. And again, thank you very much to the American Shoreline Podcast Network for allowing us uh, the time to be on here. And thanks to Coastal News Today uh, as well. Take care and goodbye. Thank you very much. Have a good one.